0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then
1: that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's.
0: Hello and welcome to the first History Extra podcast of 2020. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, section editor at BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with David Reynolds, Emeritus Professor of International History at Cambridge University. David's most recent book is Ireland Stories – which uses the recent Brexit referendum result as a springboard to explore several different facets of British history over the past few centuries. He spoke to our editor Rob Attar down the line a little while back, and as you'll hear in the interview, it was recorded prior to the recent general election in the UK.
1: David, first of all, how important do you think history or a view of history has been in the Brexit referendum and subsequent political disputes? In the Brexit
3: referendum, uh, I think there has been a lot of use of history made, references to our past, particularly the Second World War. Uh, But one of my reasons for writing island stories was a feeling that the discussion of our history had not been particularly deep, uh, that various stereotypes had been... uh, used and used again. And I wanted to see if we could go more deeply and over a longer period of time into the kind of historical background to the ideas about Europe, about empire, about decline, about Britain that have been uh, kicking around during the Brexit debate.
1: So are there any uh, stereotypes in particular that you think were particularly important?
3: Well, I think there was a lot of um, use made of the idea that somehow the European Union was similar to other uh, projects to bring the whole continent together by force. Uh, It was even parallels with the Third Reich was suggested, parallels with the Soviet bloc in uh, in Eastern Europe, Uh, and... In particular, a lot of reference to our finest hour in 1940, that Churchillian phrase about 1940 that Churchill used at the time as a prediction that people would say, however long the British Empire lasted, this was their finest hour. Um, And it seemed to me that we have perhaps got our Second World War a little bit distorted in focus by just looking at those few months in 1940. And more generally, I think we have in this country uh, paid unusual attention to both world wars compared to the way they are now remembered across much of continental Europe and indeed amongst the other major belligerents.
1: So why do you think Britain does have this, what you sort of describe as an overfocus on the Second World War?
3: Well, it was a moment when we came closest to disaster in uh, at any time in our recent history. In May 1940, the French army had been rolled over in a matter of weeks. Uh, at the end of May, there is a fear or the, the calculation is that we'll be lucky to get thirty 000 to 50,000 troops off the beaches around Dunkirk. In other words, we wouldn't have an army to defend ourselves if, as seemed likely, Hitler then moved on to try and invade Britain. And so there was something precarious about our situation in a way that was sort of almost existentially different from anything that had happened before in recent memory or in um, you know in in many centuries of, 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 of history. And. The sense of Britain standing alone, the idea that uh, Europe had gone under, continental Europe had gone under, we were fighting the forces of uh, uh, Nazism alone, the Americans were neutral, the Soviets were, if anything, uh, uh, in tacit uh, and effective alliance with, with Hitler at this stage. That was hugely important. And then, of course, Churchill's memoirs pick that up, that theme, volume two of his memoirs is called Their Finest Hour. And as time has gone on, the image of Churchill in 1940 has become absolutely central to our view of the war, even though in 1940 we were not alone as an island. It was an island that was part of an empire Uh, It's often forgotten that, for example, there are two Canadian divisions defending the North Downs at the end of 1940. Uh, We are dependent on supplies from across the empire to keep the island nation going. When we take the offensive in North Africa, a significant part of that British army is Canadian, uh, New Zealanders, Australians, South Africans – and of course indian troops uh, one of the biggest volunteer armies in history is the indian army the second world war so we have kind of written the empire out of our script in this view of britain alone in 1940 and we've tended to take 1940 as the major part of the story of the second world war we don't pay uh, in the the kind of familiar narratives about the war. We don't pay much attention to the Russian contribution, the Soviet contribution, which is vital in the defeat of Hitler's land army, or to the American contribution. Uh, In other words, we, we ended up on the winning side in 1945, thanks to our empire and our allies, as well as our own exertions. And that's a, a story which is more complex and more nuanced than this sense of Britain, the island nation standing alone.
1: And do you feel that Britain has always had a slightly uneasy relationship with Europe?
3: Yeah, we are an island. It, it, that fundamentally matters. Um, it's mattered for much of our history because on the one hand, in an era of sea power, and that's important, in an era of sea power, the island gave us a degree of protection against forces that were fighting it out on the continent. We had 21 miles of uh, maritime border on our southern side with the continent and that gave a degree of protection, whether it's against Philip II and the Armada, whether it's against Napoleon at the beginning of the 19th century or against Hitler in, in 1940. And also because we have to be a seafaring nation uh, importing so much of our food, we also use that island base as a way of, as a springboard for building a, a commercial empire across the seas and then increasingly taking control of countries where we had a particular commercial interest, such as India, and so building up this empire, which was quite extraordinary for a country, an island country of, our, of, of this size. So the island, the fact of the island has mattered historically, but of course the Second World War is a turning point strategically and geopolitically because it's at that point that what Shakespeare called the moat defensive, the English Channel, can now be bridged, can be vaulted over because of the development of air power. And so at the moment like 1940 where uh, the island, the sense of Britain as an island alone becomes very central to national identity, the island position becomes much less important to our security because of the era of air power, then missiles. And of course, we're now in an era of cyber warfare where you know you don't need planes or, 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 or ships to disrupt in fundamental ways the, the integrity of, of another country. So we've got this strange situation, I think, where um, our notion of identity is very much tied to being an island, whereas our security is not any longer.
1: And do you see, looking back at Britain's history, that Britain's EU membership has been an aberration or was it a natural continuation of previous forces?
3: I think it reflects a recognition in this country that although uh, over many centuries we have benefited from our island position, we could not afford to let the balance of power on the continent of Europe shift too much into the hands of any one country in other words there had to remain some kind of balance we had to fight or we ha- we were going to be threatened if uh, a potentially hostile power controlled Western Europe and in particular controlled the coast on the other side of the channel and the, the North Sea and that's why, Belgium, country of Belgium, has mattered a lot, the, the importance of ensuring Belgian neutrality, which was, of course, the trigger in 1914 for going to war. Um, so uh, that sense of the continent mattering even to an island uh, kingdom was was part of our history. When we think about the um, European uh economic community, as it then was, which was created in 1958, um, the British attitude to that initially is very much rooted in the experience of the Second World War. In other words, we won that war. We were on the winning side. The countries of the six, as they then were, that formed the European community, signed the Treaty of Rome, were essentially losers in that war they'd been defeated, or if they'd been initially victorious, like Germany and Italy, they'd ended up um, completely ruined by the conflict. They looked for ways of moving on from the era of the two world wars, whereas we felt that this had established and strengthened our, our sense of sovereignty, independence and global role. And so we were slow to take seriously the movement for European integration which developed on the continent as a peace project after the Second World War, particularly between France and Germany. And it was only when the Treaty of Rome was signed, the European community uh, started get, got going, and then they moved very rapidly, the Six, towards creating not just um, a common market, breaking down tariffs, but also starting to talk about political cooperation as well. And it was at that point that British governments... Uh, suddenly took this this what was going on seriously, and they did it within that tradition of saying we can't allow uh, a power to dominate the continent or Western Europe, which is not um, sympathetic to our interests. And the critical point was not an economic one. It was a, if you like, geopolitical one. The discussion in Harold Macmillan's cabinet in 1960-61 was really about what's going to happen to our special relationship with America, which was one of the products of the Second World War, if the Six really gets up and running and looks like a serious actor on the European and indeed world stage? Won't the Americans start talking to them rather than to us? So the push was to to get us applying for, for membership of the European community was really the feeling that We had to be in on this continental grouping that had suddenly taken off in a way that we hadn't expected.
1: The first referendum on European membership, clearly there was a majority in the country in support of it, but then in the last one, it was the other way around. What do you think has changed in those decades that has made British people more hostile towards European Union?
3: Well, it's a complicated situation, and I think it's partly to do with, if you like, yes, a change of, of attitude in in parts of the country in public opinion. It's also to do with the the way that the the two referenda were handled. Um, in terms of attitudes, um, the the party that was more suspicious of, uh, of the European community at the beginning um and by beginning I mean not not so much the 1960s but the 1970s because we didn't join until 1973, was the Labour Party. Um, The Labour Party was more antagonistic to the European project as a capitalist club. Um, Tories were more broadly supportive of of, um, uh, Macmillan's application, Edward Heath finally uh, getting the country into the European Union. And it was the Labour Party, Harold Wilson, the, the uh, Prime Minister, of the uh, Labour Prime Minister in the 1970s, uh, who felt that a referendum was a way to deal with the problems he had with the Labour left. Uh, what's happened since then is an increasing antipathy towards the European community and then as it became the European Union from the Conservative right, not just a small group of people who had been against the whole project from the beginning, somebody like John Redwood, for example, who I believe um, cast his first vote in any election in the European referendum of 1975 as a no-voter, as getting out, uh, in favour of getting out, and that's been his position ever since. Um, but it's also been um, a growing feeling amongst uh a part of the Conservative Party, the so-called Eurosceptics, particularly since German reunification, since the fall of the Berlin Wall and German reunification, so 30 years ago really, um, the the sense that ah, suddenly Germany was being not only united, the two parts of Germany, West Germany, East Germany, but that Germany was again going to become a force on the continent and it played on all those Memories of the war, of the two wars, all those, uh, you know, more than 100 war, World War II films that were made by British studios after the Second World War and were watched in cinemas in the 50s and 60s and then re- replayed on television and still being replayed right to the present day, which always leave the impression the Germans are the baddies. Plus the fact that as part of bringing An an agreement between France and Germany uh, over German unification, the Germans agreed to the French demand for uh, a common currency, the euro, so that there wouldn't be, Germany's Deutschmark would not dominate the whole continent. And so that was a way of of bringing. German unification uh, together. It was deeply opposed by Margaret Thatcher and it was opposed uh, by many more uh, Tory Eurosceptics, particularly when it was institutionalized in the Maastricht Treaty uh, in 1991. And so you've had then I think a a growth of Euroscepticism but it would not have had uh, political potency but for the fact that David Cameron decided that the way to deal with the Eurosceptics on the right of his party and the growing uh, 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 appeal of UKIP, um, uh, the UK Independence Party, was to have a referendum and try and kill the issue dead in the way that he thought he'd just done with the question of Scottish um, nationalism, Scottish independence in the Scottish referendum in, in 2014. And that, because of a whole series of miscalculations on Cameron's side and the shrewdness of the opposition, the the slogan Leave, for example, which is beautifully simple but in fact tells you nothing about what you're going to do as a policy, Um, the the success of that Leave campaign was part of the reason why uh, Euroscepticism tipped over into a vote for getting out of the European Union. Except that, of course, nobody had got a contingency plan for what you do if you leave. And that's we spent the last three and a half years arguing about that ever since in a way which has paralysed our politics and I fear made us in many ways uh, a joke to much of the world.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: What I think has been truly staggering for people all over the world is just this feeling British can't get on with it. What are they doing? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
2: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash history extra.
1: And another thing that came out of the Brexit referendum was the fact that different parts of the United Kingdom voted quite differently. How far do you think we fail to appreciate the differences between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland?
3: Well, who's the we? I think that one part of the problem is the indifference of, if you like, the metropolitan elite and perhaps home counties, England to much of the rest of the Union, including Northern England and also um, the other countries, uh, uh, Scotland, Wales, and and Northern Ireland. Um, And that's why suddenly this thing, the Irish backstop, suddenly became such a problem because people hadn't expected it. And I would say that one of the things that crept up on people was the fact that at the end of the 1990s, there was a fundamental change in the way we ran the the union, the United Kingdom. It didn't happen in a deliberate way; it happened um, just incrementally, as with so many things in our our history. Uh, and it's what I, although, but what it amounts to is what I call the millennium settlement. You know, the end of the 20th century, the turn of the 20th 21st century, the. Um, the, the devolution of power, significant power, to Scotland and Wales, parliaments and governments in Edinburgh and in Cardiff, plus the Good Friday Agreement, which brings to an end 30 years of troubles in Northern Ireland and creates a different kind of relationship between not only London and Dublin, but also Belfast and Dublin. That's what opened up the militarised border It's created much more informal cooperation between the two uh, states within the island of Ireland, Uh, a common electricity market, uh, bodies for running waterways and health and things like that. This is a a big change. Those, those, Those developments were a big change at the end of the 90s, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And... Politics in London didn't really take any account of it, and that also included the fact that there was a growing frustration in much uh, in parts of England at a sense of alienation from London, because they felt people felt we don't have a say in our in in we don't have a political say in the country in the same way as the Scots or the the uh, uh, the Welsh do, yet England is 85% of the United Kingdom. And that's what's been called the devolution deficit, the sense that there hasn't been a devolution of power to uh, the regions within uh, England. It's now just begun to happen with the development of metropolitan mayors in key areas, at Manchester, uh, Birmingham for example, but you can certainly see a sense of English alienation with uh, towards the United, the rest of the United Kingdom, which has gone in parallel with a sense of antagonism towards the European Union. So it, it, uh, you know, for, for quite a few um, leave voters, there was a strong correlation with, between antagonism to the European Union or strong parallel between antagonism to the European Union and also antagonism to our own union in terms of attitudes towards the Scots and the Welsh, uh, Scots and the uh, Welsh and the Irish. And, of course, it's striking that two countries within the United Kingdom, Scotland and Northern Ireland, in those two, there was a majority to remain. That doesn't have constitutional significance, but it should have political significance when you're handling such a delicate issue.
1: And another important factor in post-war history has been empire, and and actually then the end of empire. How much do you think that shapes the story of Brexit as well?
3: As I was writing Ireland stories, I I developed this image of of the way that I think some people think about our history. It's almost like um, you have you take off a, a set of clothes that a suit, if you like that seems to have become ill-fitting or out of fashion, and you can't just throw it off. So you say, okay, the 1940s and 1950s, we finished with empire. It didn't fit any longer. It wasn't fashionable globally. It became a liability for us. Get rid of those clothes, and then we put on this suit, of new suit of clothes called Europe. And it looked like then we were developing a, a European identity, but then within, you know, less than half a century... Uh, we have a vote to say, no, don't like Europe any longer, get rid of that suit and we will put on another one. It's called whatever, Global Britain or something like that. And I don't think you can take off, um, you get rid of history in that sort of simple way. It's a part, those layers of history are a part of what made us. And in particular with the empire, the common assumption in Britain is somehow we made the empire, and then eventually we decided to give it its independence. It's equally true that the empire made us in fundamental ways. Um, and one of the things I try and write about in that chapter um, in Island Stories about empire is, for example, the way we need to weave into the account of our history Um, particularly the commercial revolution, the industrial revolution of the 17th, 18th century, a recognition that we were a slave-trading nation. That was part of what made it profitable, the empire profitable, the Atlantic slave trade. And uh, cities now like uh, Bristol, uh, Liverpool, Glasgow, that in different but profound ways Benefit, gain their wealth in the 18th century from the slave trade, are now beginning to recognise that in their museums, in the in establishment in Bristol of, a, of a, a professorship in the university about the, you know uh, enslavement. Um, but that's got to become part of our writing of our history in a much bigger way. Um, and also, of course, in the last, uh, you know, seventy or so years since the end of the Second World War, we have we've always been t- to a significant extent a nation of immigrants, but much more so now, particularly with um, immigration waves of immigration from uh, the former empire, uh, wa- waves of immigration or, or um, flows of immigration that were not well handled, that were not thought through, that uh, what was involved in assimilating these people or or giving them a sense of identity and place. And some of those problems are now um, coming home to, to roost in a very serious way. So on the one hand, this is a country that whereas there is still a great deal of racism, yet it's also becoming a much more multicultural society in ways that uh, conservatives of a different era, such as Enoch Powell, were vehemently opposed to. But that's part of the nature of Britain now, and we need to understand the way that's rooted in empire to begin to handle those kind of questions more responsibly. So part of the one what I think increasingly about the the Brexit mess that we're in, and we're still trying to work it through, is that Brexit has become... It's a problem in itself that we're trying to resolve, but it's also symptomatic of a whole lot of issues in Britain's past which have been brushed under the carpet since the Second World War, perhaps out of a complacency born of this sense of victory, which we're now having to grapple with, or we ought to be coming to grapple with. Whether we will or not, I don't know. I can't say the conduct of the current election campaign really encourages me to feel that there's going to be a serious uh, way of addressing these kind of issues, as opposed to just trading slogans or promises, um, you know, about future bonanzas once one party or another is elected. But we are, I think, at a significant moment in our country's history. And Brexit is only one symptom of that larger problem.
1: And another um, theme that comes through a lot in your book is the idea of British decline and how that has shaped the country's history. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
3: Well, the way I approach this is to say that um, what to me as a historian is striking is not so much the position Britain has has is in in the second half of the 20th century in the early 21st century. The surprising thing is the position it achieved in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, particularly the 18th and 19th centuries. In other words, what needs to be explained historically is not so much decline, if that's the word you're going to use, but rise. We got to a position through some the advantages of being an island trading seafaring nation, and also through being at the vanguard of the industrial revolution, which you would not have expected a country of this size to have achieved. We're totally different from continental empires, continent-sized empires, such as the Russian Empire and the American Empire, which really is um, an empire of its own within within North America, controlling vast amount of natural resources, large populations and so on. In the 18th and 19th century, we punched way above our weight. Where we are now is much more what you'd expect for a country with this size of population, with considerable skills and historical heritages in terms of certain areas of industry, financial services, and so on, but not a country that is going to be in a position to call the shots In the way we were able to do in the uh, the 19th century. And so this obsession with making Britain great again seems to me to be um, unrealistic and unhelpful um, when we're trying to come to terms with what makes sense for a country in the 21st century and a country which, as I said earlier, has got A number of serious, historically rooted problems that it ought to be addressing, without worrying about whether it is where what exactly is its status within the world as a whole.
1: And how do you think historians of the future will look back on this period of British history?
3: Well, uh, of course, it it will be in the future, and it's hard to judge that. Um, I do think there will be puzzlement at the way that the question of uh, leaving the European Union has been handled. In other words, you might uh, debate the merits of uh, leave as against remain, but when there was a, uh, a clear vote, at least in, in arithmetical terms, uh, a 4% majority for one side or another, I think much of the world thought, okay, maybe I agree with this or I don't agree with what Britain's doing, but they'll get on with it. What I think has been truly staggering for people all over the world is just this feeling British can't get on with it. What are they doing? And, of course, the whole thing, because of the English language, has been played out on world media Anybody who wants can tune in and watch the, you know, the Punch and Judy shows at the House of Commons or whatever, adding to this sense of puzzlement at a country that really seems to have lost its way. So I suspect that historians will be fascinated by that. I would think, partly because, you know, that's my approach in this book, that they will also be asking whether this connects up with deeper problems in our history. I think it does, but as I also said, I think that, as with most historical crises, the personal element, the elements of contingency and chance, matter as well. And the challenge for historians is always bringing together those those different elements: the deep structural reasons, and also the circumstances, the oddities, the quirks of uh, the moment. Uh, which tip things one way or the other. And that's part of the challenge of writing history, getting that structural and contingent elements to come together.
1: And you, you talk about these, these deep structural problems that underlay Brexit. I wonder if you could just highlight some of the ones you think were most important and also whether Brexit might offer a solution to them. We were never
3: comfortable within the European Union uh, in the way that it developed We didn't buy into that European peace project. We joined because we felt we couldn't afford to be outside. But consistently we positioned ourselves, if you imagine the European community or European Union as a circle, we positioned ourselves as close as possible to the circumference, to the edge. We kept, you know, opting out of... um, the, uh, the, um, the single currency, uh, opting out of the social chapter, uh, opting out of all sorts of wings and saying, okay, well, well, we're in, but it's on our terms. And I think for many people who advocated leave, the assumption was that we could move just outside the circle and we would then be outside the European Union, and the things that really irritated them in terms of identity—the question of the European Court, um, the uh, you know what Theresa May called that—you know, getting back to the iconic blue passport. Well, I don't know; it's iconic for perhaps people of her generation. Uh, but half the population don't know what she's talking about. They don't have any memory of it. But anyway, those status and identity issues, but we could still profit from, um, you know, the close relationship with the single market and all the rest of it. That has been um, proved to be a a grand illusion. We will have to fight, like anything, for an advantageous trade agreement with the European Union, and we will have to fight uh, for... Uh, advantageous trade agreements with other countries without the benefit of having 27 other countries within the European Union fighting with us so i think there's going to be a big problem there and what it re- what it relates to is this deeper sense which i've talked about of um a country that has understood its history in insular and singular terms, that we have a kind of special situation and that somehow that can be replicated even in the 21st century, even if we don't have the uh, wealth and power that we once had and that wealth and power was what enabled us to create those very favorable circumstances.
0: That was David Reynolds. Island Stories, Britain and its History in the Age of Brexit is out now, published by William Collins. David also wrote a piece on this subject for the December issue of BBC History magazine, which you can read online now at historyextra.com forward slash island hyphen stories. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Serhii Plocki will be describing an unusual instance of international cooperation in World War II.